Welcome to the Autonomous Podcast, a curated audio Q&A with media personalities. I'm Steve Krakauer. This is episode 11. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Tere, author and former MSNBC host and now host of the Love City Podcast. Today's Autonomous Podcast is powered by Sculpt, the creative agency for a connected generation. That's S-C-U-L-P-T, more on them later. From poker with Jay-Z to basketball with Prince, from reputational Russian roulette on social media to the Kardashianization of celebrity, we start at the beginning. Where were you born? Uh, in Boston. Okay, how, how long did you live there for? I grew up there um, through high school. Have not lived there since the end of high school. Um, went to Emory in Atlanta, and after three years there, the third year, openly questioning, what are we doing here? Like, what is the import and value of a liberal arts education? And really, <clears throat> to the point of, why do I have to finish this? And none of the, and I, you know, I knew lots of professors, lots of administrators, lots of graduate students, and nobody could give me a very clear answer as to why you must finish, which I found very strange that these people who had invested so much in the institution could not, you know, when posed with a direct question of why are we doing this, could not give me an answer. Yeah. So I left. Um, somebody I knew was driving to New York, and so I got in his car and we drove from Atlanta to New York. And uh, I started living here, and I was working at the coffee shop. Maxwell was there too, uh, and I I started trying to write. I was trying to write at the source. So I was trying to write for the Village Voice. Um, you know, I got, and I started interning at Rolling Stone and over time I got an assignment in each of those, which led to another. And then my career in media sort of started. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Well, let, let me back up a little bit first. What going, growing up in Boston, do you have a, a moment that's sort of your first memory, something that you can, you can vividly remember? My first memory? Yeah. Um, the thing that I think of as my first memory, um, is this, that my father was sitting down in this, in this chair that he had in his bedroom and the chair was very like low to the ground, like the, the bottom of the chair and he's sitting in it and I was shorter than him still. So I must've been very small to be sort of standing up and talking to him, but shorter than him sitting down in this chair. And my father is very yellow um, and has like freckles. And, you know, I must have been three or four. And I remember I said to him, you're white. And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, people think you are. I don't know why I would have said that. Really? Yeah. And he said... And, and he said, no, they know I'm black. And, and that was the end of that. <laughs> and uh, that, that, is the, that is my first memory for some reason. Interesting. How old do you think you were? That, that must have been pretty early on. About 
Maybe three. Yeah. Wow. Maybe um, four. Interesting. So you talked about the, your your time at uh, at Emory College and leaving college. How about before that? How, how were you as a student? Um, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. Did you like school? What were some of your experiences there? Um. Yeah, I mean, I loved school. I went to Milton Academy, which is sort of a known New England prep school. You might have seen Austin Goolsby, you know, worked with Obama and economics, um, economic issues. He was uh, two classes ahead of me. I knew him at school. Oh, really? Um, you know, there are other people you've heard of. Deval Patrick went there, you know, I mean, Ted Kennedy went there wow. for a period of time. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's old New England private school. And I, and I loved it. I mean, my parents, it was quite a, I was there from first grade to 12th grade. My sister was there from kindergarten to 12th grade. And, you know, it was quite a, uh, quite an achievement for my parents to be able to get us into this sort of a school in the mid-70s. You know, the schools were starting to open up and look for black students and try to get them, you know, in their mixes. All the New England schools were doing that at that point. But we were sort of at the beginning of that effort to, you know, recruit black kids. Right. And um, so it was made very clear to us uh, overtly from our parents and sort of tacitly from the way, like, just People, perhaps strangers, would respond when they heard, like, oh, you go to school at Milton Academy. Oh, wow. Um, that this was an extraordinary opportunity to be going to school at Milton Academy. And, I mean, the school itself was plenty good at, you know, reminding you in all sorts of little ways some, some meaning, something they meant to do and some they didn't necessarily even mean to do, that this was an extraordinary opportunity for you to be here at the school. So, I mean, there was no question of, like, not loving it. It was like beyond loving it. It was like, you know, you are privileged to be here at part of this. And, you know, you, you need to recognize that. And we totally recognize that. Um, and I feel like the training that I got there was much more effectual uh, in getting me to where I've gotten than the experience I had in college. Interesting. The experience I had in graduate school at Columbia, even though I went for half the program, um, was extraordinary and pushed me quite far ahead as a writer, um, farther than I expected. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I know that the bedrock of whatever I have been able to accomplish uh, is the training I got in high school. Oh, well. And the expectations that were created for me, you know, in the in the community I was in in high school. Um, when did you uh, start going by Ture uh, as just sort of? I, it was interesting. I read a uh, yeah a, a review when, of, um, of of your one of your books that I want to talk about in a little bit um, from from ten years ago. But and, and it described it as this, you know, goes just by Ture. Just you know, and it was like yeah. When, when did you start? When, when I you, went. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I want to know when, when, when was the story behind that. From, I mean, when I was in high school, I started, I, you know, I was, I was thinking more and more about what it meant to be a black person in this society, uh, you know, and learning more and more. And, you know, I, I sort of, it became sort of clear to me 
we don't have the connection to the past that is taken for granted by the white families around me. You know, one of my closest friends in high school had this genealogical map on the wall going back 400 years in Ireland. Right? We, we could not do that, right? My father's father passed away before he was born. Don't really know that much about his background. Um, you know, we just, you know, we just can't trace it. So it just sort of was a, was an, was a symbol and an embodiment of the, the dislocation that African-Americans in general uh, experience sort of, you know, that sort of historical uh, dislocation that happens in the movement from Africa to America. So my response to that when I moved from high school to college was to then start identifying solely as one name. And, you know, within the college system, you know, there was really no traditional college system. There was no way to do that. I wasn't demanding my professors refer to me only by one name. They were already only referring to me by one name, right? You know, I wasn't like going to the registrar's office and saying like, you know, I want to be listed by one name. But when it started to become operational is when I started to write. And there was an incident at college that only college kids would care about. Uh, You know, there was a, you know, when you had a party as an organization, you signed a little contract for when it would start and end. You know, our the Black Student Alliance was having a party. I was part of the group. They were supposed to end at, say, 11 or 12. And, you know, the campus police came an hour earlier than that and said, we have had noise complaints. You have to shut it down. We were super offended. Um, we wrote, like, 20 letters to the school paper thinking they'll have to publish all our letters. They boiled all our letters, which were basically the same, making largely the same point down to one letter with 20 signatures, which I now understand was the proper journalistic thing to do in that situation. But we did not understand that. I did not understand that. I took that as an offensive uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of just squashing of our voice. And I took it on myself to start a newspaper, um, which was called The Fire This Time, which was meant to be editorials on... What was what life was like uh, for you know black people locally and nationally? You know what's going on on campus, what's going on in the nation, and that was that was the bulk of what I spent my last year and a half at school doing. Doing that more than my schoolwork. Right. I mean, I got my schoolwork done, but more than fifty percent of my time was was working at some aspect on creating this paper, getting it out, getting people to write for it, getting people to donate money to, so I could keep going and making more of them, getting it printed, passing it out, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that was a pretty extraordinary experience um, that sort of led me into media. But, but that in doing that, I would only write with one name. And when I went to write for the school paper because I had become – a figure in the media ecosystem of the school because I started a newspaper that everyone was reading. I was like, so, you know, you're going to publish me with one name. And they were like, whoa, that's weird. Why, <laughs> like, you know, but I insisted on that and they uh, and they accepted it finally right. after a fight. 
Um, so everything that I ever wrote professionally going back to college was with one name. We'll talk about Teray's time at CNN and MSNBC later, but Teray left Twitter for more than a year recently. What was the reason, and what advice did John Mayer have? Um, you left Twitter in July 2014 after a tweet that you later apologized for. Um, you stayed away for more than a year. Now you've been back for about a year. Um, so what forced you away? How, how did you? How did your sort of consumption, news consumption, media consumption change, uh, habits change? And how have you enjoyed being back? Um, you know, one of the things about working at MSNBC was that, you know, like I said, you're on this stage where other people are watching and, um, you know, sort of wanting to respond to what you do. Right. And I'd never experienced that. I was not that big a deal at CNN when I was there. I was not in politics. Um, you know, and CNN is, is, is middle of the road, right? It's not the left. Um, so there was, I mean, you know, you could feel like there was an active conscious effort to try to hurt us, to, you know, to, to get us sort of taken out. And, you know, a lot of times it was totally like a soccer player feigning in, like he's been, killed and you look at the replay and the other guy didn't even touch him and he's crumbled to the ground and he's crying and he's oh my god i'm so hurt and like oh please spare me you know like you know this notion of like looking at something and purposely misunderstanding it and being outraged at the misunderstanding um that you know is not honest to what was said um and you see a lot of that and you know, we sort of got caught up with that and it started to feel like, you know, this, this is unnecessarily uh, risky, you know, to something that is right. really critical to my life. And I remember talking to John Mayer once about this sort of stuff and he referred to Twitter as uh, reputational Russian roulette, you know. And like I didn't, you know, like nobody forced me to get off of it, but, you know, there was a moment when it was like, you know, there's nothing you could write that would improve your career, right? There's no tweet you could write that would be like, wow, look at that, like, you need a raise, or you need a promotion, or, you know, you deserve your own show all by yourself, because, like, look <laughs> right. at how you tweet, but there's definitely stuff that you could write that other people could you know, go, oh, wow, look at that. I'm so offended, and now you're in trouble. And I'm not even talking about people saying actually racist things. I'm talking about people, you know, going, oh, my God, I'm so offended, and like, oh, please. Yeah, well, that's funny, the, the idea of Twitter as this platform for, like, soccer dives. <laughs> um, but, you, you you know, know, but it does seem like there, from both sides, um, there is this raised... Uh, I don't know, it, 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 offensive. People get offended very easily or maybe feigned to be offended very easily, especially on Twitter. I don't think that, I, I, I do not think that that's from both sides. I do not see the left being, you know, super sensitive and offended over little things that's like, oh, please, 
Like, really? I mean, and I feel like if I saw that, I would be upset with my people, with my tribe. But I don't see that. You don't think that there's... Like, the the debates on college campuses about safe spaces and microaggressions contributes to this? Do I think that the debate on campus about safe spaces contributes to... the idea of, um, you know, stifling debate and and opinions and, and not, not hearing from speakers, maybe, you know, right-leaning speakers that, that are going to say let things say that this. may offend. Let me say this. I, well, let me say this. I, I'm, I'm not now in academia, so I can't really comment on that, and that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, the folks who are in and around the table news world, um, you know, who formed the, you know, the folks who are on TV, on the radio and online commenting in this, you know, in and about this space. And, you know, when people are, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I see the right quite often. And I mean like the professional media right quite often feigning outrage when, surely they are not truly outraged. And I do not see that on the left. And I would not appreciate seeing that. Um, but this sort of flopping, I, I, I don't see it. I, I mean, and if you see it and you think I'm being blind, then tell me where you see it. But I don't think that both sides are equivalent. I don't think both sides function the same way. I don't think they approach the game at all in the same way. Um, so, yeah. Well, let me go to another side of social media. Um, you know, you've, you're now on Instagram, Snapchat. Um, do you feel like social media, you need to have this, this presence, this sort of ubiquity on lots and lots of platforms, a growing number, in order to sort of build that personal brand? Um, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah. It is of value to, you know, if, if this is something you want to do and that want to be part of, to be... Um, yeah, to be sort of, you know, communicating with, you know, your folks through various different social platforms. Um, and I mean, you know, just if you will, you know, if you, if it's of interest to you, for people to know who you are and what you think and what you're thinking about, you know, then, uh, yeah, you don't want to just do it with one. You want to sort of cross pollinate, you know, and do it with others. I mean, I look at each one like a different club. Before Teray's career on TV, he spent time as one of the most prolific profile writers of pop culture icons, a journey that had him playing poker with Jay-Z, and much more. What's the key to writing a great profile? That, next. But first, today's autonomous podcast is powered by social media agency Sculpt. Sculpt works with entrepreneurial brands they believe in, helping build community, drive conversions, and tell powerful stories through social media marketing. Their Iowa City-based group of community managers, digital strategists, and graphic designers have become the extension of in-house marketers, startups, and creative teams nationwide. And they'd love to show you how. Find out more at wearesculpt.com. That's W-R-S-C-U-L-P-T.com. Now, back to Ture. Um, It's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a performative person. So, I mean, you know, given a chance to go on stage, it was definitely like, you know, let's, let's do it. I mean, I remember the first time I was on CNN, 
I was with uh, Paula Zahn, and it was like 6.30 in the morning, which is like earlier than I normally even wake up. I would normally <laughs> yeah. wake up at like 10. So I'm, I'm standing in the wings, like half asleep. And I'm there because I had been at Rolling Stone for like 10 years. And, you know, I was a core part of the editorial team uh, writing about, you know, the, I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a title or anything, but I was, I was the hip-hop writer. You know, every major hip hop assignment I would I would get, and so there was a call to talk about Michael Jackson long before he was dead, and uh, I remember standing in the wings and being like half asleep, and I don't even drink coffee, so there's nothing to like sort of jolt me up. Yeah. And as soon as we walked out there with the lights and like just I went right to it, and it just like woke right up and like. Me and Paula had this great, like, bing, bing, bing. You would have thought that we were, you know, Lucy and Desi, and we've been working together for five years. And, like, you know, we just had this great electric conversation about Michael Jackson. And, um, and you know, as I mean, it, 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 as soon as it ended, the light went off, and she turned to me, and she was like, you are so great. You should do more of this. And I mean, it's like, you know, in the movie version of my little life, that's what would happen. And I'm like, I cannot believe that this woman just said that to me. Like, right. that's amazing. Um, and so they started calling me back and call me back and talking about culture and talking about this and that. And um, so that morphed into the morning show before even Soledad came to be part of it. The morning show started doing this three-person panel where we would talk about whatever's going on in culture. It was called 90 Second Pop. And Andy Borowitz was one of the people on the panel. And, um, you know, that the panel went really, really well. And over time, they were like, okay, you know, why don't you come and do more? And they so we started being the pop culture correspondent. And I'd go to the Grammys and I'd go to the Oscars and uh, you know, interviewed uh, Paul Haggis. You know, what I mean, big movie yeah. crash comes out. We interview the director. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I tried very hard to incorporate my music background in that job and try to get Eminem, try to get some other people. And the music industry was really not generally just completely not interested in being on CNN. Really? Because you had talked to Eminem like, before, right? Yeah, I had talked to Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, him, him specifically, yeah, I'd done a couple of interviews with him before. But just the music business, for whatever reason, was just like, CNN doesn't sell records, and that's really not of value to us. So that was a bit of a disappointment that I was, like, trying to bring my music people along there with me, and they're like, we don't want to go there. Yeah. Quick, quick aside. Did you like Crash? It's an ongoing um, debate I have with some people, but um, I think it was a little more problematic. I think it had, you know, great ambition, but I think it was a bit simplistic in the in its uh, in the way that it dealt with with race for yeah. a film that's like we're all about race. Like, well, that's a really simplistic sort of discussion of it. Yeah, it hasn't aged particularly well. I would say. Right, um, right. 
you had a uh, speaking of obviously interviewing and, and, and pop culture uh, you had a book come out in 2006 Never Drank the Kool-Aid a series of essays tracing some of the works um, uh, interviewing really the, the biggest names in pop culture and music and in celebrity and, and the, the profiles that you wrote the people you got a chance to talk to through those jobs and obviously through the book um, what stands out to you from that time um, as, as particularly interesting and, and illuminating moments? I mean, so many. I mean, like, you know, every story has, you know, its own sort of moment that, you know, that, that explodes. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a photo album for me of like, you know, just, just these awesome great moments that I lived through mostly in my twenties, but, but also into my thirties. I mean, you know, playing poker with Jay-Z and his friends for thousands of dollars, you know, all night long in the Trump, uh, hotel, you know, I mean, that was, you know, that was extraordinary, you know? And I mean, you know, at one point, you know, I'm, I'm, I think at like 1230 or 1am, I was down like $4,000 and I was like, Oh my God, like (laughs) such an idiot. And how could you have let it get to this point? And now you're basically, you know, paying to do this fucking story. Like, I mean, like, I mean, that, that eats up the entire fee for the fucking story. Like (laughs) the fuck, you know, I was really upset with myself. And, uh, the, the game we were playing was extraordinary. It was, it's called guts where they deal each person two cards and that's it. There's no flop. You have your two cards. You don't see anybody else's hand and you decide whether or not you want to stay in the hand. Huh. It's based on what you have. And if you win, you keep the pot. And if you lose, you replace the pot. So the amount in the middle can get very high very quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, so after you deal, you go around in a circle. Do you want to stay in? Do you want to stay in? So, I mean, it's a, it's all body language. And, you know, I mean, a little bit knowing the value of what you have, you know, like poker hands. But it's mostly body language. And just, you know, if Jay stays in, he's probably got it because he doesn't usually bluff. But he bluffed two times ago, which maybe <laughs> like shit like that. Yeah. And... So I was able around 2 a.m. I was able to I I made a side bet with a couple of people and got a great hand like a killer hand and milked it out and uh, turned it around a couple good a couple more good hands and I was like up four thousand dollars by like 3 a.m. and I'm just sitting there like please let this game end now please like let this and um. It it ended. I ended up like several thousand dollars and uh, thrilled about thrilled to win, thrilled to not lose, um, and it's just a great story, yeah. you know. Like sitting there playing poker for you know some real money with like Jay Z and like seven eight guys and um, you know. But I mean, you know, flying to, to can with Beyonce and. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, being a being with Tupac at his sexual assault trial. I mean, like, there's, wow. you know, you know, I, I wanted to have moments with people, right? Not like 
just cover them, but like to be in a moment with them. Uh, you know, so there would be a story and a scene that would give you a, a real sense of who they are. And, you know, just sort of sitting there watching for those and hoping for those, um, you know, it did, I was able to get a bunch of them. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things you don't really, you know, it's, it's hard to tell about the art of profile writing and, and journalism in general, if, if, if just from reading the piece, the finished product, it's, it's sort of what happens in between and kind of the, the sense that you can get with someone when you have that kind of, uh, that access to them, which is, which is really interesting. I mean, yeah, you gotta, you, you gotta listen to them as you're interviewing them, but you also have to watch them. You can't get everything from what they say. You know, there has to be, you know, how do they walk? Or how do they move through the world? What is their body language saying? You know, what are they doing? Not just like what are they saying when they're talking to the interviewer, but what are they doing in the world um, as you are a fly on the wall, you know, m moving near them? Um, you know, some of those things can be, you know, more telling and more interesting than, uh, than anything else. We'll close with Trey's work on MSNBC, but first... How is Trump like Rafael Nadal and Steph Curry? And what does his rise say about the GOP? You know, we should have seen we should have seen it coming. It should have been as plain as day because the antecedents are all over the place, right? The GOP has for quite a while been a dysfunctional party. It has been uh, heavily anti-immigrant, um, anti-factual. Um, sort of uh, anti-science, of course, going along with anti-factual, anti-media, um, and anti-government itself, right? And so as they kept telling their people over and over, the politicians in Washington aren't doing anything, they're not doing anything right, eventually the people would say, well, maybe we should choose somebody who is actually not a politician, Um and somebody who, you know, played on, uh, you know, their fears on immigration, you know, their anti-media bias, their anti-politician bias, um, things that the, that the GOP had been creating in their people. They're, so much of what they do is just being oppositional, not actually trying to come up with ideas, um, you know, being obstructionist, you know, playing brinksmanship. Uh, you know, perpetual campaigning in terms of, you know, we're not really here to legislate. We're just here to screw you over so that when the campaign comes, when the election comes, we can say, see, you did nothing. Um, or you failed, uh, you know, you failed to close Guantanamo. Well, that's because you've been blocking me from closing Guantanamo, you know, but that's not, that's not, a, you can't say that, you know. Um, so, you know, the, the Republican Party has been, in disarray and not functioning uh, in a healthy way, as far as the democracy should go, for quite a while. And, you know, the number of times that I sat in that chair at MS and talked about, you know, the brinksmanship um, and, you know, the way that the ideology has gone far, far to the right, um, I, you know, I, I can't even count. And those are things yeah. that have led to Trump and Trumpism and the idea that government doesn't work, um, policy is not really important, 
just a super strong personality. I mean, you know, in a way, yeah, Reagan and perhaps Bush would not be able to get through a modern GOP primary. But in a way, he is them on steroids and that Republican primary voters have for a long time responded to, you know, the macho guy who seems to stride in from outside of politics. He's tougher and stronger than everybody. He says he's going to clean up this town. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a cowboy. And, you know, Trump is not literally a cowboy. Reagan and Bush, like, played around with being cowboys. Um, you know, but I mean, like, you know, spiritually, he, he's, he's, a, he's a cowboy. It's not just Trump. It's not just he did not win this nomination by luck or lottery. He, ex, he comes out of what the GOP really is. And that is really the problem. And if you erased him, as in we keep going and nothing subsequently changes, you'll have another like him uh, the next time. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of, of, you know, this time, next time, you know, you wrote a Vice column, uh, you talked about the nasty racial politics of both Trump and Hillary. Um, you wrote the 2016 general election, going to fill the country with a negativity that will suck the life out of us and perhaps inflict lasting damage on the country's political system. What do you think on the Democratic side, especially with Hillary Clinton, that is she's doing to make this race about, uh, this about race in a negative sense? Well, um, uh, you know, I, I anticipated that Hillary would run a, at that moment, I anticipated Hillary would run a more cynical and nasty campaign than she has. And to her credit, she has not. She has not uh, met Donald where he lives. She has let him punch himself out. And, you know, she's happy to let him talk and lose news cycle after news cycle and sort of, you know, get, she's like, I'm just going to get out of your way while you just keep fucking up over and over and over. Um, you know, Hillary has been, uh, you know, has, has wrapped herself in the cloak of Black Lives Matter. Um, it's, you know, it's something that's important to her. The mothers of the movement had a prime speaking slot at the convention. Um, you know, the video of her with them um, is, you know, very important. And black women, in, black people, but black women in particular, are a critical part of the Democratic constituents. Uh, con uh, but, but Black uh, Lives Matter has not particularly taken, you know, a liking to her. No, they're not endorsing. Not necessarily. Exactly. They're not endorsing, right? I mean, she's. She's she's basking in the refracted in the refracted glow, right? But I mean, you know, the mothers of the movement are separate from BLM itself, right? Um, but you know, I mean, they're they're part of it, and it represents. I see this. I care about this. This is important to me, and it will be important that Hillary do something. And I I I believe that she will be a very powerful and positive force in this issue as much as she can be. Um, in a lot of ways, these are quite often state issues. There's things the federal government can do, but a lot of times these are state issues. But I mean, you know, for me personally, this, you know, the, the core of the policing crisis, the, the number one and the number one challenge facing black Americans at this point is the war on drugs. And I don't know if I can support another after this, 
I don't know if I can support another candidate who is not talking about trying to end the war on drugs and, you know, hoping that I can be part of pushing the Democratic Party further, you know, a little further to the left if, you know, if, as it looks, that they'll be in a situation where they'll be looking for a fourth consecutive term. I was going to say, what about Gary Johnson? Um, I mean, you know, I'm not a dumb one-issue voter. I am a Democrat, (laughs) and I am hoping to push the Democratic Party to share the ideas that I have. But I am not, not, uh, you know going to support a third party bid that has that we all know has no chance of winning you know right, i would okay. i would take the position of i am i am challenging and not supporting my democratic nominee because he or she is not as far left as i need her to be rather than throwing away my vote you know with a party that cannot win Last thing on just this election cycle and Trump specifically yeah. how much do you think the social media twitter has contributed to this rise of, of Trump and, and really potentially other candidates who can get this amazing new platform. They don't have to rely on maybe the traditional news outlets or, or you know, the former way things were done. I mean, you know, Trump is Trump is unique. You cannot you cannot do what he does any more than you know you can do what Rafael Nadal does or you can do what Steph Curry does or. I mean, these are unique figures. As much as we may revile the things that come out of his mouth, um, you know, you have to admit he's an extraordinary entertainer. To be able to stand in front of millions of people, as he's done in the aggregate, and, you know, with few notes and entertain them, um, as he does, is is quite extraordinary. And, you know, I'll give him credit for that, just as I give Rush Limbaugh credit. He's an extraordinary entertainer. You know, he's He's, uh, you know, corrosive to America, and then the, that the message that he spreads is 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 divisive and ignorant and racist and hateful. But he, they are extraordinary entertainers. You can't take that away from them. Um, you know, so nobody else can do what Trump can do. You can't say like, "Well, be you know, you're going to see like Trump-ish candidates." Like you may see Bernie-ish candidates because other people will want to take up the mold, the the mantle of what Bernie did and his economic populist message. But you, you can't be Trump-ish. So there's no, right. you, you know, I mean, the, you know, there, there's no way of sort of following that way. Um, I mean, you know, I think that we're going to see in the end, like, yeah, the tweeting was nice, but there are fundamentals that you do have to pay attention to. What sort of advice would you give for someone who's just starting to try to break in the media world, doesn't really know where to start? What would you say is, hey, you know what, start here, look at this? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. It's hard for me to answer because the media world now is so different than when I came in. There was no internet. There were, you know, a large number of magazines, um, you know, different things that like, you know, the different structures that made it one path and now it's a different sort of thing. Um, I mean, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that helped me a lot was having a strong sense of where I wanted to go. I was in my early twenties living in New York saying, you know, I want to be in media. I got to, you know, meet folks and, you know, see how I can get to write for different publications. And, you know, I want to meet this person and that person. And, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, some folks 
just takes them a little bit longer to figure out what they want to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you can figure out what you want to do earlier and start really zooming toward it, that can be very helpful for you. Um, but it's all, and it's also really important to have intergenerational friendships, which is really another way of saying mentors. And I find that mentor termed very loaded and people have these expectations on what it means. People come up to me and they're like, will you be my mentor? And I'm like, if I said yes, what would that then mean? Like, what would we then do? Like, is there, yeah. we have a ceremony or do I start downloading information on you? Or like, <laughs> but like, you know, I would just befriend people who are 10 to 20 years older than me. And within that, ask them questions about a field that they know about that I want to get into. And then they are mentoring you without the pressure of saying, you know, will you be my mentor? I'm your mentor or whatever. Um, I mean, like I never ever use that word in talking to these people, usually men, but there were definitely some women who were very helpful too. Um, but just sort of just showing up, you know, in somebody's office, or on their phone, you know, from time to time and just asking them questions, you know, smart questions that are downloading their information into you. And, um, you know, people like to do that. I mean, you know, if somebody younger comes to me and they're like, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I pitch a story? You know, that I can answer and I can talk to you about and I can help you figure that out. And I'm happy to do that. Um, but like be my mentor, like, what does that mean? You know, right. um, you know, and I mean, you know, if you're listening to this and you're younger or you are talking about this issue with somebody who's younger, um, I think that's a much more effective way of, of creating a mentor relationship of just genuinely befriending the person and asking, and within that, asking them questions about the field that they know that you want to know better rather than using that sort of M word. From MSNBC co-hosting a show with perspectives from all sides to his work now, producing a podcast highlighting what people love. When Michael Jackson passed away, um, they called me and they were like, hey, so we, we need you to be part of our team now, like now. And, you know, so we did, so we did a deal and I was on a lot talking about Michael Jackson because that story lasted for a little while. And then it morphed into talking about this and that and other things. And then it morphed into talking about political things. Um, and, you know, the Dylan Radigan show was, was using me in a lot of different ways outside of what I was initially there for, you know, starting to become sort of like a person who's part of their ecosystem at MSNBC, like a, small part of it but still so as i'm going through that i'm like asking people like you know what do i need to do to get a show i want to get a show what do you need to do and i really did not did not merit really asking for that but i have always championed the idea of asking for more than you should than you perhaps even deserve getting because there's no other way to get more you know, when I was an intern at Rolling Stone, I was like, how do you become a writer? Like, 
and no intern had ever become a writer at Rolling Stone. That was not done. Right. They were a free labor force. But because I was asking and pushing, I was able to do that. And then MSNBC, I was asking and pushing. And unbeknownst to me, Dylan Radigan had told them that he was leaving. And, you know, and uh, they were looking for something and they didn't quite know what to do. They didn't quite know how to fill the hole that, you know, the massive personality of Dylan Radigan would leave. And they didn't want to put a single person there, but they didn't know what to do. And I was sort of going around pushing the idea of like a panel show because I was doing, you know, like that, that was the first time on the Dylan Radigan show that I ever did a consistent panel. It was called the mega panel and it was on Fridays. It was me, uh, crystal ball and Ari Melbourne. And, you know, I'd done tons of panels on television, on CNN, MSNBC, everywhere else, but it had never been the same group of people. Right. And doing the same group of people over and over, I saw, like, this is really powerful that we kind of know where each other stands. We're kind of continuing a conversation the way a sort of couple or a group tends to do. Like, yeah. you know, this is this is more interesting that we build, we're building up a rapport yeah, versus always yeah. a new group of people. Right. And so I was like, you should take us and Essie and make a show out of us. Um, and finally, Bill Griffin was like, that's actually a good idea. And the next thing I know, um, they're like, let's have another lunch and talk about this show that we're going to put on in two weeks. <laughs> or it's like, yeah, it was like two weeks or something absurd. Like I'm going to be on every day starting in two weeks. Like, you know, it really sort of is a massive upheaval in your life. Yeah. Like, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I have one routine, one rhythm. Um, I have to buy an entirely new wardrobe. I have to adjust my schedule to, I'm going to be at this office doing this thing all the time. Um, but you know, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was an extraordinarily exciting moment. Well, and, and also, you know, speaking to the, the whole camaraderie and, and getting a chance to work together, the, the, it felt, Significantly, you know, again, people coming from the right and left. As he was, was you know, from the from the right, and there were people there who were more left leaning. You know, the fact that it was not this sort of cable news shout fest that is the usual thing when you get someone from the right and the left um, w was sort of a differentiator. It felt like something unique at the time. That was extraordinarily important to us that we find ways to disagree agreeably. You know, we all hated the cable news shout fest thing um so we wanted to be respectful of each other it was tricky because it was a very passionate time and you know we were talking about extraordinarily passionate issues you know we're talking about obama uh we're talking about you know the uh the aca we're talking about you know gun issues you know that we covered a lot of uh mass shootings we covered, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of the attempts to make gun, uh, you know, to, you know, get gun legislation passed through Congress, right. um, you know, really hot button stuff. And there were a lot of times when it was a truly passionate uh, argument. The, um, you, you left MSNBC and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on, I mean, I guess sort of the end of the cycle, but also 
Um, Melissa Harris Perry left recently and and wrote about um, in a has become sort of a public thing about um, describing it as, as being a token or a tool um, of MSNBC. Did you have any of those sort of experiences? And, and you know, how how was the the end of your time there? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about that, but <clears throat> I mean, you know, the end, uh, you know, was very abrupt. I mean, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, at one point we had a show and then, you know, we had a meeting on Thursday after the show, like, so tomorrow's the last show, <laughs> you know, yeah. like rapidly your life is about to change just as rapidly as you got on. This treadmill, now you're getting off, um, and, you know, really fast. And, you know, it was the, the whole thing was very, in, the whole experience was very interesting because, you know, people knew who I was before I was at MSNBC, but there was really a sense of like, you're doing a job that other people are commenting on as their job, right? Other right. people are like watching you, like in a professional or semi professional capacity um you know like we were you know quite often thinking about like you know i don't want to end up on mediaite or oh shit you know here i'm back on mediaite or or you're on mediaite whatever yeah um and you know and not wanting to look bad on there or the other sites that would talk about us um and you know i mean it, it was it was it was sort of an unforgettable moment when I'm sitting there about to go on. I mean, we're about, I think we're about two minutes, 90 seconds till we went on. And you look at HuffPo and the, the, the headline story is knives out at MSNBC. And there's a picture of Wagner Schultz and the cycle. And it's like, well, I'm about to do the show, so I don't know what you fucking know, but, you know, Man. but I mean, like, holy shit, like, <laughs> you're the number, you know, you're the top story on HuffPo, like, it was, uh, I mean, yeah, that was, that was really heavy, yeah. you know, but I, it was not in any way embarrassing, because I think we did a really quality show that I think people look at fondly. Um, you know, I think we did a great job and really took that opportunity and made the most of it. And, you know, I'm proud of what we did. And I think others, uh, you know, remember the show fondly as one of the great MSNBC shows. And certainly, I, I think, a precursor to other cable news shows to come on, on a variety of uh, channels. So um, in that way, it, 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 it has a lasting impact, that for sure. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now with the, the new podcast, Love City. Um, episode one was on uh, Prince. Uh, tell me a little bit about the podcast itself, but also what drew you to the medium uh, of podcasting? Well, you know, one of the things that I was doing when I was at MSNBC um, was uh, riding a city bike a lot, you know, because for a while they, you know, would get us a car, car service to go to the show and home. And after a while, you know, as to be expected, there was the, you know, the, the, the belt tightening yeah. and they canceled all those, they canceled all these cars that were just, you know, that a lot of people were taking, uh, for granted. And, uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to ride a city bike to and from, uh, the office, 
you know, was I really loved riding a bike in the city. And, you know, I really did not want to listen to music while I was doing that because um, it, it fills your ear too much so you lose too much of a sense of what's going on around you as you're on the road. Um, so I would listen to – so I started listening to podcasts. And this is before Serial blew up, that like in the – about a good year, I think, before Serial blew up. But I really started to dive into this world of like as I'm on the bike riding to and from – work like what is this world what is radio lab about what is this american yeah. life about what is this show about what is that show about so when the cycle went away i started trying to move into podcasting and meeting with people and developing concepts and you know eventually i landed on uh love city which is a deep dive into culture and into you know what is this aspect of culture what is its history why do we love this thing it's like I start with Prince, and you know, in 1999, sells about two million albums at the time. Uh, Purple Rain sold about 16 million albums at the time. Incredible. That sort of a leap is is not normal in the record business. So why did he? You know, and these albums are like 12, about 12 months apart. What was the thing that made it explode? So, you know, what, was, what were the things that made Prince change? Uh, you know, 1999 is very funky, and Purple Rain is very soulful, uh, rock and roll-ish, soulful rock and roll. So, you know, that's, that, that was sort of a big change artistically for him. So just how did Prince change to create um, uh, the, the explosion, the career explosion that happened for him in 1984? And we're talking to you know, his engineers, tour managers, bandmates, you know, lovers, friends, you know, people who were there, who knew him, who could talk about him in the first person. Right. Um, you know, and the second episode is about, uh, you know, the a sort of cultural history of Adidas Sheltos and how they moved from, you know, uh, you know their creation and, and, and the, in the 70s and early 80s, a period when, Adidas was, you know, itself really, you know, in the toilet kind of not doing well at all and how, you know, really black hip hop culture um, really coalesced around this shoe uh, and made it into something that became, you know, an international icon. And the third episode is about craft chocolate. Um, you know, we talked to the Mast Brothers and John Sharpenberger and uh, Colin Gasco, who's like, you know, the reigning gold medal winner for, at the International Chocolate uh, Awards. <laughs> but he has basically a one-person company, and he only produces six to 8,000 bars a year. So even though he's the best chocolatier in America, he lives with his parents. <laughs> And I, it was also, you know, fascinating. I think with the first one with Prince, the the personal anecdotes that that came from that. I know, you know, you wrote a uh, a book about Prince, but also, you know, you talk describe this this. I don't want to give too much away. People can listen to it, but um, this one on one basketball game, which became or which started with an email exchange, which was fascinating, and then this two on two game, and and uh, and and the uh, the idea that he just sort of disappeared at the end, and this. Uh, I think it was an assistant who said Prince doesn't say goodbye, um, which is just a, a sort of a fascinating insight to him. I, I think it's it, it must have been, I mean, we talked earlier about kind of the, the array of people that you've 
interviewed and, and profiled, um, but Prince has to be up there also with just some of the most fascinating people. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, Prince is definitely, you know, one of the most exciting moments in my career, um, you know, spending time with him. And There's something that was different about him um, as a celebrity, as a famous person, than maybe even exists with anyone now. Um, you know, I feel like they're the Kardashianization of celebrity has made it so that it's very hard to learn new things about people or to have that kind of mystique. Um, do, you, do you see that? I mean, do you think that Prince was sort of a di different from the celebrities of today? Um, yeah, no, totally. I mean, Prince exists in the, in, largely in the, in the pre-internet period, the bulk of his career, the, the, the hottest part of his career. Um, and he's able to play with mystery and not talking to the press or being, you know, a sort of uh, elusive interview um, at a time when that was something that was done. And nobody does that anymore. Now it's about overexposure, um, you know, and, and, and intimacy through social. And, um, you know, the, the strategy that Prince used, you maybe wouldn't want to do that now, right? It may you know, you may sort of get run over by all the other people who are feeding the beast, you right. know, when you're not. But, um, you know, that said, he, as he moved on in his career, he was quite revolutionary and forward in the way that he used the internet, that he was doing what we would now call uh, chat rooms before they were called that. He, you know, he would, he would, you know, do direct conversation himself uh, with fans. Um, he would do a lot of his fan club work selling music directly through, you know, way before that was a thing. So, I mean, in terms of his Internet strategy, he was very, very forward thinking. Got it. Uh, so uh, what else are you working on? I am trying to find a certain class of, of man. And if they're listening or if they know somebody and they can send them my way, I'm doing a book that I hope I expect to put out next year about why men cheat on their wives. And so I'm looking for guys to talk to me anonymously about why they screw around. And, I mean, like, everywhere I go, I'm talking about this because I'm trying to find, like, 68 guys. I've already talked to about 41. And, um, look, my email on this is show at gmail.com. Right, T O U R E S H O W at gmail dot com, and like just just email me. It's super private, you know, and just tell me your story. Like we'll get on the phone and tell me your story about screwing around. And I mean, I've had some amazing conversations with some some great guys who were stepping out, and uh, it's, it's crazy. It's it's gonna be a it's gonna be an interesting book. Well, I'm happy to say I have nothing to talk to you about or about that. So. <laughs> That's Autonomous Podcast number 11, a curated audio Q&A with media personalities. Thanks to Teray, and thank you for listening. Today's Autonomous Podcast was powered by Sculpt, the social media agency behind campaigns like The Third Wave, a new book by AOL founder Steve Case. Find out more about their clients, capabilities, and culture at wearesculpt.com. That's wearesculpt.com. Sculpt, the creative agency for a connected generation. And you've listened this far, we might as well say we're also powered by my company, Crack Hour Media. 
We combine experience with experimentation to tell your story, finding new digital audiences for you, your brand, or your company. We do that by focusing on great content, video, written, and audio like this. Find out more at crackhour.media. That's crackhour.media. Next week, we're joined by Hannah Storm of ESPN Talking Olympics and more. Talk to you then.